The Free For All Roundtable. Round two. On round two today, Kevin Vong is here, MP for Spadina, Fort York. Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford live in studio. And uh, we're on the lookout for Pamela Palmiter, who's a frequent contributor, but we haven't been able to uh, establish a connection this morning. So you guys let me know if we connect with Pam, but that's okay. We can all talk together. Uh, Kevin Vong, I don't know if you were listening, but uh, in the tease, I said I had a question for you, and it's this. It's only a rumor, but I was told that you had been approached by the Conservatives to run in the next election. Is that true? Is Kevin it was to me. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of chatter. At the end of the day, what I can tell you is I will work with anyone if it means being able to help fight for affordability. I know Torontonians are suffering, uh, fighting to make a safer city, community, and country. Because without dwelling on this forever, I think the consensus out there amongst watchers is that you stand a chance of doing all right in the next election, no matter who you were to stand for. So, I mean, are you looking to stand with a party or will you continue as an independent? I think the reality is it's it's hard for, for an independent. There's a lot of structural barriers in terms of being able to fundraise before there's an actual uh, writ period. Um, so I think the opportunity to be able to work uh, with anyone, ultimately, I think we can do the things that Torontonians need to make affordable and safer is is always something that I'm open to. Okay. Uh, we're getting a little Mr. Roboto action on your audio signal. I don't know if you guys can solve that. And I'm going to move on to other issues. And I'm going to start with Brad Bradford on five former junior hockey players have been told to turn themselves in in connection with an alleged sexual assault from 2018. And, you know, a lot has been made, and I'll let you take this in any direction, about the cultural aspects or the impact on hockey. But at the core of this are allegations of rape. Yeah, it's very serious. Uh, I had a conversation this morning with somebody who used to play hockey with one of the gentlemen. And, uh, you know, the culture in hockey has to change. I think on the other side of this post-2018, you've seen an entire turnover of the Hockey Canada board. You've seen a lot of uh, new training regulations coming in and recognizing that you have to embed that culture uh, at a at an early age. It's, you know, when the, when the guys are playing AAA, when they're playing junior, a uh, little late. So the changes in the reforms that Hockey Canada uh, has made are long overdue. This is a symptom of, of an issue that's existed for a long time. And I think what will be interesting to watch uh, is how the NHL responds, because all of these guys, uh, as I understand it, are under contract. A number of them are logging minutes in the NHL, and they have been for several years now. And so far, the NHL has been radio silent on this. So we'll have to see where it goes from the league perspective. Uh, changes afoot uh, at Hockey Canada, though, that were long overdue and uh, you know it's time to change the culture uh, in the locker room. And Pam like any sexual assault trial this is going to be an, an ugly session in the court and it comes down to all kinds of things Robin Doolittle documents in her feature today including apparently they shot videos in which the uh, the victim said I'm you know I'm consenting and I'm not drunk I mean it's it's going to be one of those you know, she said, they said affairs. Well, I mean, we don't know the totality of the evidence, and that's what the whole court process is for. Generally, police need at least some kind of prima facie evidence in order to lay the charge. Um, so there's something there. The fact that this is rampant 
within hockey in general and has been for decades, but also rampant in male sports, uh, not just in Canada, but in the United States, and hasn't been taken seriously. Um, there's not always going to be a camera, thank goodness, in some respects, that documents everything. There's not a court reporter sitting there when crimes happen. Of course, they're going to be difficult, but I'm glad that they've proceeded with this to make sure that all the facts get on the table and that if this has happened, that there is some justice for this woman. And Kevin Vong, it says everything about the mentality, I guess, of sport up until the time of this you know, presumed reform. But I mean, Hockey Canada had this multi-million dollar fund just sitting there for events such as this. I think that's probably the most alarming red flag for me. I think, you know, like Brad was saying earlier, culture changes afoot, and I think it's it's critically needed, especially for Hockey Canada. Now, I think what's also important for us to remember is we have innocence until proven guilty. There's due process, and it's important now for, for the courts to ultimately be able to prosecute this um, and ensure that justice, hopefully, um, is is done. Uh, let's move on to the City of Toronto budget, and in particular, the police budget. And Nick Mayorano, if you can throw in clip number 21, this is Olivia Chow expressing some degree of exasperation and saying that the budget, police budget, has been misrepresented. She's not cutting it. Let me set the record straight. The Toronto police are receiving millions dollar more on the budget. There's no cuts. There's 25 million on the property tax, and then there are millions in reserve funds, several reserves, one of which is the staffing costs that we may need because negotiation of the contract is happening this year. Okay, Brad Bradford, I'll start with you because you probably know the line items better. Uh, up until she said that yesterday, the mayor, it, the, I think the union and the chief were winning the argument and saying, you're cutting policing, you're all going to be stabbed to death in your home. Yeah, I think this is still more magic math from the mayor. Uh, yes, there are reserves that the city is uh, making contributions to, which is important. Uh, yes, there have been dollars allocated for some of the protests and uh, callback services that have been needed that we've seen over the past year in Toronto. But the reality is this represents the largest cut to an approved police budget from the board in the history of Toronto. That, that is fact. The police okay, budget... Okay, but doesn't it amount to a cut or you're just not getting as much as you wanted? It's, it's a cut from what was approved. So it is less than what was approved. Yes, that is net more than what was last year. Like every division in this budget is receiving more than they received last year because this hasn't really been a saving budget. Uh, but it is a cut from what was approved. And what is concerning about this is that is coming right out of our ability to hire frontline officers. We still have fewer officers on the beat than we did 12 years ago, uh, back in, in 2010, and it's starting to show. I mean, with the call call waiting times, 22 minutes for priority one calls, this impacts our ability to hire. It's, you know, it's the $12.7 million that they were going to be putting into new hires this year, and that effectively freezes it out. So it's great that there's money uh, and contributions from the City of Toronto to reserves. That's not frontline hiring, and you're going to see it, and you're going to feel it. This is a cut. Okay, Pamela Palmiter, one doesn't have to be a defund the police advocate to say maybe police should figure out how to get by on the money you give them. 
like everybody else. I mean, think about the state of our health care and, you know, waiting times and emergency rooms and doctors and nurses. I mean, that alone. Um, and, and I mean, I think most people can see through police union PR 101, there is no budget cut. Yes, they were hoping to get more, they maybe were planning to get more, but it is an increase. And so I think we really need to talk about the facts. They're getting more money in a time when all over the world there's calls for defund the police because of aside from all of the specific problems, all of the inefficiencies, how many police officers do we have on paid leave for lots of uh, reasons, how many inefficiencies are happening within the Toronto police force, for example. And I would love to see the auditor do an intensive review of the police and really look at where they're spending their money and their time and how much is going to overtime and things like that. So we got to be careful. The facts are they're getting more money than they did previously. And that's the fact. Okay, last word on this file, Kevin Bong. Oh, I, I think the police are is facing a similar issue um, as what we've seen in the military, which is I think there's been a a lot of public discourse that vilifies people in uniform so it's no surprise that folks do not want to volunteer to to serve the the other thing that i think people need to note um, to provide some actual context and, and facts is there are on average i've seen about 200 or so officers who are retiring every year and my understanding about the the budget as proposed is a cut because it only allows for about 90 new officers so you know 200 minus 90 um i think there's quite a bit of a difference there so it is in effect whatever the absolute um changes is a cut and i think it's important that the mayor governs for the 97 percent of torontonians who say that a publicly a properly funded police service is important she has to govern for all of the city not the three percent who do not like the police brad bradford uh, you were on our show not long ago decrying the city banning tobogganing on hills and it turns out people are still doing it. So are these the Rosa Parks of tobogganers? <laughs> I wouldn't make that comparison, but it's not shocking. Of course, uh, kids and families are going to toboggan when the snow is lying at the local toboggan hills. Uh, this is another example of the city being out way in front of their skis there, putting their head in the snow and pretending that if they put up signs, sorry for all the puns, uh, if they put up all the signs, uh, people aren't going to toboggan. It is just ludicrous. Uh, these have been toboggan hills for generations. You can sign it and say tobogganing ban. Um, but people are still going to be out there because it's an affordable and accessible activity. And it's it's an element of growing up in a winter city. It's an element of Canadiana. And uh, I will be moving a motion at Council on February 6th to reverse the ban, to reinstitute the, the hay bales, the snow fencing, all, all the safety measures. And if the city wants to put up some signs that absolve them from legal liability, I think that's a good idea in the same way we do with winter maintenance on staircases and skating trails and hockey rinks. Um, this was lazy this was the uh big government bureaucracy uh you know taking the easy way out and uh, a unilateral ban is you know really the worst of toronto it's it's no fun city and uh, i'm not going to stand for it i wanted to turn to a more serious topic with the time that we have and pamela palmater i was astonished this morning to come across the accounting for how many people died of drug overdoses in british columbia last year where it is epidemic i appreciate we have an issue here as well but two 
2,511 people dying from toxic drugs in BC last year. That's appalling. It is. And they've been calling out the crisis for a really long time. And we know that lots of the support centers and other calls for medical supports have been controversial in some segments. However, when you look at the statistics and what studies there are that have been done, they're dying from literally the toxic on the streets drugs, not from uh, the supports that you get at safe injection sites, for example. And so we really need to consider the health implications. I mean, this is life and death, the health implications of the supports that are being called for, for people who are addicts. I mean, this is a serious health crisis and issue, and we need to be providing supports regardless of what we think of people who um, do drugs, because we don't know the reasons why they started. Uh, Kevin Vong, there's just seconds on the clock, but um, if 2,500 people in B.C. died from something else last year, we'd declare a crisis. Absolutely, and and that's why I think it's important that uh, harm reduction is there, but harm reduction without treatment does not break the cycle of addiction. And so I think there's been so much focus on on the, the toxic drug, drug supply that that we're forgetting uh, the treatments that work, like um, OAT, they're called opioid agonist therapy. I I won't have the time to get into it, but it's so important that we also invest in helping people to break the cycle, not to enable their continued harm. My thanks to you all. Great talk, Brad Bradford, Kevin Vong, and Pamela Palmiter. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.